afternoon. Top of the class already. I like it. Um, thank you so much for coming to the third session. It's always the one that you don't want to get as somebody doing a seminar. And then you definitely don't want to get it at the same time as the main stage speaker <laughs> doing his. So thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. My name's Alan. Um, along with my wonderful wife who couldn't be here today, we are associate pastors in Belfast City Vineyard. Been doing that for about 13 years or so. Uh, 12 years ago, I helped to pioneer our compassion ministries called Storehouse. Um, and I now have the privilege of chairing the board, line managing the staff, and leading that as a separate charity, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful privilege. So how many of us have thought, or even at some stage said out loud, why does no one else care about the poor? That last word was poor, for those of you who can <laughs> understand my accent. Henceforth, I would just say poor. How it should be said. Um, we've all kind of thought it or felt it, right? Um, I know I have. We see huge need every day. We see brokenness and pain and heartache. And then we see lots of people who roll in on a Sunday morning. They're happy to hear our stories of success and what we're up to. They're really happy to declare that they're part of a church who ministers to the marginalized and the vulnerable. But then when we try to recruit, response is kind of next to nil. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. I've had this conversation in my head so many times down through the years, and loads of times with key leaders and staff. Uh, and nowadays, my first response is, you need to be quiet. Usually something stronger, but it's being recorded. And I'll say, they are probably really passionate about something that you're not passionate about, and right now they're grumpy with you. You ever been in your kids' ministry rooms on a Sunday morning? Yeah? They're giving their lives to see our kids come to know Jesus. They're giving everything they have. My next response is, if this is so important to you, how are you going to gather? Because grumpiness and guilt and frustration are not compelling motivators. If we are going to build churches and communities where compassion um, sits at the core, then we are going to have to work out how do we invite people into our joy, not guilt them into our frustration? How are we going to invite them into our joy, not guilt them into our frustrations? As a little sidebar, your frustrations are really good and they are holy. This world is not as it should be and there is brokenness and there is pain and the vulnerable and the marginalized are constantly uncared for and unseen and that's not okay. That should frustrate us. That should make us angry. But those emotions do not need to go towards your church. They need to firstly go to Jesus. He's big enough to handle them. He needs to hear that. And they secondly need to go towards the systems that are broken in this world. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is most definitely not against the flesh and blood who are in our pews on a Sunday morning. It's against principalities and powers. That anger, that frustration is righteous. Just point it in the right direction. So if we're going to invite people into our joy, if we're going to compel people to come be part of what we're part of, 
uh, and then in return to find joy and to invite others in and to start something that is contagious, that infects a whole culture, it begs the question, how do we find joy in the midst of such brokenness and heartache and pain and need? I want to try and give us a couple of uh, handles today and some tips, and then we'll hopefully have time for some questions, and we will definitely, definitely have some time to do some ministry and to just pray for one another and at least cry together, if nothing else. Sound all right? So that's the plan. So let me pray for us. So Holy Spirit, we love you. We love you. We need you. Come tenderize our hearts all over again. Come encourage us all over again. Come challenge us and come call us to more. To come, Holy Spirit. Amen. So the first thing I want us to consider and I want to ask of us and ask ourselves, are we running projects or are we building community? As we think about being amongst the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor, are we building communities or are we running projects? We personally and the, the teams that we lead, we face huge challenges and overwhelming need. And if our ultimate goal of, of the ministries that we head up is to fix people, I would do inverted commas, but it's really hard when you're holding a microphone it's like this. Um, if we're trying to fix people to, to meet their needs, we will always feel like we're failing because there will always be more need. At which point have you fed the hungry in your city? Like if you could reach a moment where somehow you could measure that no one in your city was hungry, they're going to be hungry again tomorrow or next week. At which point have you canceled all the debt? Because right now more and more is being added by those who would pray on the vulnerable and manipulate them. And so on and so on and so on. And we, as, as called and as passionate leaders, we might have the strength and the heart to keep going, feeling like we're failing, though I can't count the number of times that I've told Jesus, I quit, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. But not many of our volunteers can bear to remain in a ministry that feels like it's never quite winning, that feels like we're always failing because there's always more need. I had it again on the plane on the way over here on Monday. Have you ever had this conversation where somebody asks what you do or what you're passionate about? You tell them about the things you're involved in, which they've never been involved in. And then they say the line, that must be so rewarding. Have you had that? And you smile and you nod and you want to punch them in the face. Yeah? <laughs> Can we cut that off the cord? Because how many nights have we lain awake not sure if the person that's on our hearts is going to be alive tomorrow? How many times have we celebrated a win only to see someone cycle back? There's always more need. There is always more need. And meeting a need, you know, ending hunger in your city, seeing no more trafficking victims, you know, having no more people sleeping rough on the streets of your communities, those are amazing desires, and they are great rallying calls but they aren't enough to hold us over time. They won't sustain us because we can't actually hit it. We can measure it and we can know we're not hitting it, right? 
Because you can check and you can know that there's still people sleeping on your streets. And you know there's still people stuck in modern day slavery in your city. And so we feel constantly like we're failing. If on the other hand, we seek as our primary goal to develop community amongst those that society would, would push to the margins, if our goal is not ultimately to end need, but to develop community and genuine connection and deep friendship, then we aren't chasing an unreachable goal. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to meet need. We do tons of physical provision stuff, and I'll touch on that in a second. But our goal, our mission statement at Storehouse, our main aim, is to develop communities that recognize the significance in everyone. That's what we're reaching at. There's, there's no or, or very little lasting joy in trying to stem the tide of a tsunami of need. But true community, like heart-to-heart -heart connection, friendship, always offers joy. Even in the midst of the most painful circumstances of our lives, and because community is always, it is always impossible to measure, or almost impossible to measure. You know, it can be as small as two people having a coffee. That's community, right? It can be as big as 2,000. It can happen in any one of a million different ways. It's kind of intangible, but it's also there. It's right there in the midst. You can always be winning. If you can get two people together to share something of themselves, you can be winning at forming community, and there can always be more to reach for. The deepest joy that I have found in ministry has not been in the provision of goods, and we've seen God do incredible miracles. You all know those miracles. You're the one where somebody needs something specific, and you know it's not in the storeroom, and you throw up a random prayer, and you go in, and lo and behold, it's right there. Or somebody walks in to donate the thing that you've just told somebody you don't have. Like we, those are incredible. I love those. But the deepest joy for me are in those moments of heart connection. Um, I remember about a year and a half ago, I, I, I still try and do some work. Um, now I'm up kind of leading the organization. But I used to run a team on a Friday night, a volunteer team in our provision environments. And I was leading this Friday night. I was just super grumpy. I'm just going to be brutally honest. It had been our week of prayer and fasting. I had been away from my family loads. I was just kind of really hungry. Um, I was getting ready to come here the next week, which is going to be another week away from my family. It was a Friday night. I was like, oh, it's my turn. I've got to lead. I just want to be at home with the Chinese and my kids. And um, halfway through the session, um, this gentleman comes in, referred to as well-dressed. Um, he, he's from Syria. And we sit down, and I begin to hear his story. Uh, and he begins to tell me how he's been in Belfast for just over two years, how he was a, a lecturer in a university, how he'd had to flee and leave his family behind. Um, I, I know a little bit of the political scenario, and it's likely he was going to be conscripted to fight in a war that he didn't want to fight in. And so he's fled. He leaves his wife, his three kids, and his unborn child at home. And I'm just coming apart inside. And he talks about just this journey of the last two years of struggling. And I'm suddenly feeling super guilty about like being away from my phone, like being grumpy about being there. And then this smile comes in his face. And he's like, just this week, 
they finally arrived in Belfast. I met my daughter for the first time. And I'm just like, yes. You know, I'm weeping inside and I'm laughing outward and we're embracing and we're hugging. And like, I actually don't know what he came in for. I don't think he knew what he came in for. He maybe took like a, a cooking pot or a frying pot. I don't know. What he needed was to be in a place where he'd been and was known and come not as a need to be fixed, but to share a joy. And I needed it, <laughs> much probably more than he needed it. And it wasn't about meeting a need, it was about a connection. And when our compassion ministries are projects, and they're solely based uh, on meeting needs, then minimal life change can occur. When our main goal is to meet needs, we will see minimal life change. Shane Claiborne, in his book, Irresistible Revolution, puts it this way. The church becomes a distribution center, a place where the poor come to get stuff and the rich come to dump stuff. Both go away satisfied. The rich feel good. The poor get fed. But no one leaves transformed. No new community is formed. Or... As one of my absolute favorite authors, Henri Nouyen, writes, compassion then can never be separated from community. Compassion always reveals itself in community in a new way of being together. That we can win at. That sounds like the church. It sounds like what we were called to do and called to be. When we stop looking to do stuff to or for the poor and start doing with and among, there is so much joy to be found. And joy is always contagious. Joy is always contagious. And of course, don't, like, I'm not being naive. There is endless heartache and brokenness and pain. That's why we need the rest of our church family being what they're supposed to be. To hold us close to Jesus and put us back together again in the midst of our heartache. But there's always joy in community. Always joy in community. Over the last few years, my biggest musing point is how do we take those that we deem to be service users or clients or people that are referred to us, how do we take them and those that we would deem to be volunteers or those that have come to help out, and how do we blur those lines into insignificance? How do we create a third entity of community member that each can come into on a level ground? How do we remind ourselves that we belong to each other, regardless of the stories that we've lived out? And we are by no means there. Like, please don't hear me in any way trying to say we're perfect. We're like a million miles from it. But that's what we're trying to do. There are plenty of days I still want to burn the whole thing down. <laughs> you guys know that's true. But this is what we're reaching for. This is what we're aiming for. And we started to try and create community environments where no provision took place. Where if you came and you needed a food bag, we wouldn't give you one. Sounds wrong, right? We have time for that. But we wanted to create environments that weren't about provision. That were about community and community alone. And we stopped rotating a team. Worst idea ever. Worst idea ever. We stopped having a team. There's no volunteers. We're just a community together. Whoever shows up does the work. Um, and it's been a beautiful mess. There's so much life. There's so much joy. So we started with home. 
this is not a radical idea. It's breakfast and a chat. And whoever shows up cooks the breakfast. <laughs> That's it. We just turn the room around in these sofas. We just make little pockets. We put out some Jenga. We put out whatever games people can play without English. And we just sit there. And if nobody shows up, I cook myself a bacon body and I drink good coffee. Sounds like a good deal to me. And we just simply create space for anyone to come in out of isolation. You don't have to be hungry. You don't have to be poor. If you simply want to connect, come. If, you want, if you're starving and you want to come for breakfast and talk to nobody, that's fine. But come. You'll probably get a job um, and you'll probably have a good chat. We do that every Wednesday morning in life. It's wonderful and messy and everything in between. Um, we started doing uh, once a month something called The Table. Um, I started chatting with people. I, I know from my life, so much of community and connection happens over food and around the dinner table. I grew up just that's where you eat your, your meal, around the table. began to chat with folks that we were working with and building friendships with, and a young lad in his mid-twenties told me he'd never once eaten a meal at a table apart from school. I thought, that's not okay. And so we decided we want to do a family dining experience. Not a canteen where the first person's finished before the last person's got their meal, but a family dining experience. Not somewhere where the poor come and sit and the less poor, again in inverted commas, uh, serve them. Family. So at f on a, uh, second Tuesday of every month, we say show up at four and help us cook. Whoever shows up, that's the kitchen staff. <laughs> uh, show up at five and help us turn the room into a dining room. Show up at six and we'll sit down together and share a meal. The theory is if you've done none of the first two that you stay at seven and do the dishes. But as every good family knows, only parents do the dishes. Um, and of course we still need parents. Like we need somebody to plan the meal and buy the ingredients. But they don't do all the cooking. The only two rules of the table. You've got to serve someone else somehow. And you've got to try and talk to somebody you don't know. Simply creating community. Nothing more than that, nothing less than that. And this thing's so contagious. We had an amazing, amazing uh, young lady just in the last year who caught some of the joy of this being in community and being around folks. And she came and she said, look, I'd love to drop down working, give you two days a week. I don't know, you're not really doing anything in my skill set, but I'm a baker and I'm an artist. What could I do? And I went, what could we not do? <laughs> um, so we now run Tuesday Afternoons Bake, um, a women's only baking group. It's not a class. We're, we're not really teaching skills. We're maybe imparting skills by osmosis, but we're building community. And cakes take a long time to be in the oven, and so there's plenty of time for a chat and a cuppa. None of it's scripted. None of it's forced. It's simply community. We do a, a Thursday create. It's just a, a drop-in, completely open, creative environment. Anybody can come. If you want to learn art skills, we've got an arts teacher. We've got some incredible painters and wonderful people. But they're not there as teachers. They're there as artists, just bringing who they are into community, drawing people in, creating safe space. To simply be. Um, and uh, I got this text just yesterday from a Kurdish friend. Um, he said, I love this place. I'm here every day. Monday for cafe and food bank. We don't run a cafe, and we haven't ever called it a food bank. <laughs> But 
he's actually there serving. <laughs> he just doesn't realize that's what he's doing. He's just drinking coffee and, and helping. Tuesday for English and guitar lessons. Wednesday for breakfast that's home. Thursday for create. Friday for church and some Friday and coffee. I'm not sure what that, the some Friday is. He's just trying to say, I, I can't stay away from this place. Not one of those environments is he receiving provision. Not one of those environments is he made to feel that he's them. He's us. He couldn't articulate the difference, but he's family, he's community. He's crashing in. Are you guys running projects to meet needs? Or are you developing community? Again, of course we need to meet needs. Again, we'll get to that in a second. But what's your primary goal? What are we reaching for? Second thing I love us to ask ourselves, are we being transformed? Are we being transformed as we do what we do? If, we, if what we do isn't impacting and challenging us, it will never be contagious. The best recruits are not one on Sunday announcements. I know I do our announcements every Sunday. I feel like I just want to bang my head against the brick. Anybody else do Sunday announcements? Oh my gosh. Like I have leaders come afterwards and say, hey, why didn't we announce such and such? And I'm like, I just literally just did that. <laughs> like nobody listens. That's not the best place for recruits. They come from impacted community members who cannot stop talking about what they're part of. If we try to invite uh, people into our joy, into a joy that we haven't fully embraced, if we try to invite people into something that isn't impacting us, they're going to know and they won't buy it. You wouldn't buy it. But if you're being transformed, if you're being impacted, it's going to be contagious. For the last two months, I have been utterly stuck in John 11. I cannot get past it. I can't get around it. It's a children's song in there somewhere. Um, it just won't let me go. It's, it's where Lazarus dies and Jesus comes to be with Mary and Martha. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. But before he does that, so it, what's really floored me is this. Um, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had, been, uh, who had come along with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. I grew up in a, like a, a super religious environment, so I always loved this verse because it felt a little bit like swearing. I would say Jesus wept with a little bit too much like you know, vigor. But um, it's that verse that's got me floored. Like three or four times in this little passage, John tells us that Jesus is grieved or heartbroken or deeply moved, that he weeps over Lazarus. Have you ever asked yourself why? He knows that he can fix the source of their pain. He knows he's just about to fix the source of their pain. He's going to raise him from the dead. If that's me, I'm just like, stop crying. It's all good. Lazarus, out you come. Boom, party, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't rush in. He enters into their sorrow. He allows himself to be impacted by their pain. It just blows my mind. 
blows my mind. He doesn't trample over Mary and Martha and their emotions and their agency in their own lives. He stops and he allows himself to feel at the deepest possible level. He exercises compassion. Literal translation, to suffer with. To enter into another's pain. Not to fix it. Not to end it but to engage with it and allow ourselves to be impacted and shaped by it. If we are going to develop communities that are deeply rooted in compassion, we have to be willing to enter in, to allow our hearts to be affected. That means both in pain and in sorrow and in celebration and delight and joy at little things that we might not necessarily want to celebrate. You know, that moment when somebody who's in a chaotic and really broken circumstance comes to tell you they're pregnant and they're delighted and you're like, oh no. Yeah? That's a moment of celebration. And of course we can suffer with the child that's going to have maybe a hard life if we don't really step up. But we've got to celebrate as well because life is always worth celebrating. We have to be willing to enter in. And my best thinking at the moment is that Jesus is showing us one of the ways that he wants to meet us and transform us. That if we stop trying to fix people long enough to listen and to get close we might just meet Jesus there. So often we think that we're going to go and we're going to bring Jesus to those on the margins, right? That's what our church think we're doing. We're taking Jesus to the margins. Nah. Jesus is taking us to the margins. Actually, more accurately, Jesus is at the margins with those he loves so deeply, saying, do you want to catch up? I've got something for you here. Not just that you've got something to bring. I've got something for you here. I'm waiting for you. I want to meet with you. Come join me. I can honestly say I have been more impacted and more transformed by those that I've got to do life with in Storehouse than anyone else who stepped through our doors. Jesus has met me again and again and again. He has humbled me. He's taught me how to receive from those that I thought I was supposed to save. <laughs> And he's showing me the beauty that they carry. The beauty that those that our society would disregard and push to the margins. He's showing me my poverty. And in doing so brought me life. Uh, Jean Vanier, who founded the L'Arche communities around the world. Uh, he once said, The gospel is good news to the poor, not to those who serve the poor. So that's it. <laughs> We all are broken. We all have poverty. The poor will often show us the way to Jesus if we'll stop trying to fix them and actually become one with them. I have an amazing staff member. Um, he has to give me permission to share this story. I'll, I'll call him John because hopefully some of you will know him or get to meet him at some stage. Uh, John's been with us in the storehouse journey for probably at least 10 years. Um, absolutely instrumental. Storehouse would not be who we are today without him. He is amazing at delivering on projects. He is task-focused. 
He is just relentless in delivering uh, on detail. He is one of my most trusted leaders and, and dearest friends. But he has always felt like he struggles with connection, with being face-to-face with the poor. He's a little challenged by, do you know the aroma that just sometimes is in our environments? Yeah. He can't cope. He just can't cope. He's got this little bit of a cynical edge to him. He really, like time and time again, he's just come and he's more honest than me. He's like, Alan, I don't, I don't like people. <laughs> Can I just do the stuff in the background? And we've talked about that down through the years. And I see more in his heart than he sees in himself. But about two years ago, a guy came in. I think it was first to the table to one of our, our Tuesday night meals. We'll call him Bob. Uh, Bob was disheveled, maybe even dirty, some might say. He had obvious mental health issues and physical issues. He was in the midst of active addiction. Um, he, he, he came with his male partner, who was also seriously, um, seriously physically uh, incapacitated. And John's first impressions of Bob were, let's say, not positive. <laughs> Um, he thought Bob was sleazy, not at all pleasant to be around, incredibly difficult, and he did everything that he could to avoid him. Over the past two years, as they've been forced to be in community together, so John would always be in the kitchen. He runs the kitchen at our table. He runs, at the early days, he ran cooking breakfast at home, mostly because he wanted to hide from people. But when you do community and no one has a rule, <laughs> the best things happen. So where does Bob want to be every time he's in our building? In the kitchen. (laughs) And so over two years, they were forced to be together, and this incredible friendship has formed. Uh, Bob has become our chief bacon cooker every Wednesday morning in life. Uh, He's first in the door. He's last to leave. He's involved with multiple agencies all across our city, but he always chooses to be with us when he can because he knows he's part of the community. He knows he's one of the family when he's with us. Um, About six to nine months ago, when he got beat up on the streets of our city one day because of his sexuality, he refused to go in the ambulance. He refused to go to the police. He arrived at our door. And John and I held him, drunk and bleeding and just weeping. You know the ugly kind of weeping with the snot everywhere, and which is not John's best environment. We held him, we cleaned his wounds, we dressed him in clean clothes, we fed him incredibly strong coffee and good pizza. Couldn't get him to eat to get him to sober up, so I had to buy the entire staff team really good pizza just to get him to eat. And we gathered round him and we were simply family. We lost an entire afternoon just to be with Bob. Drove him home, began to put him back together. And then a couple of months later, Again, he cycled round and was, he, he was off the rails. He wasn't with us for a couple of weeks. John began to get worried. One morning, somebody came in and said they just spotted him somewhere else in the city. And John dropped everything, dropped all that he was doing, and he ran. And he spent the next hour hunting the city, just trying to find him, trying to find where he was. He ended up back in jail at that stage, and John started working with how do I get in to visit, how do I bring him what he needs, how do I help with trying to get him bail. And Bob and John... Um, so Bob's currently in our building at least three days a week. He can't focus on anything for longer than about two minutes 
puts in our art group every week, just trying some new project and just loves being there. Him and John meet every week for 20 to 30 minutes trying to work through a recovery program that should take roughly 12 weeks. And they're taking like 12 weeks for step one. But doing community. If I'm honest, Bob's somewhat changed. He knows he has a place that he's family. He knows he has a place where he belongs. He's happier. Um, he knows that we love and value him. He has a degree of a sense of purpose. He's still struggling with addiction. His mental health is a little better. His physical appearance and care for himself is a little better. He's still with his partner. And um, both of them went to a different church one Sunday night and prayed a prayer, which is wonderful. But nobody followed on a journey, so we're trying to work that through. Um, but he's experienced the love of Jesus. And he knows that we're his family for as long as he wants us, regardless of what he does, regardless of how he shows up. He's having a bad week this week. But John is transformed. Jesus has taken him on a journey of revealing his love for us all. Their friendship has shaped and tenderized his heart. He went from judgment to utterly loving Bob. No matter what state he finds him in. And his heart towards those who walk through our door is now a little softer and a little gentler. And Jesus has a long way to go still. He's currently wrestling with, can we call it genuine community? If I'm not willing to invite those folks home for a meal to my house or out to the cinema like I would do with anyone else. That's a great wrestle. It's way better than when he was, where he was two years ago. Proximity to the poor transforms us if we stop trying to bring Jesus to them or be Jesus for them and simply look for the fingerprints of the divine that they already carry. Doing compassion ministry this way is tough. Well, it's always tough. It's tougher, I think. Trying to get well-meaning volunteers to think about community ahead of getting work done can feel impossible. We almost, like, almost had complete open revolt when I insisted that our Thursday night food packing group took a tea break. <laughs> they had come to fix the poor, and that meant maximum efficiency, pack as many bags as we can in an hour and get home, tick box, job done. Like, no, 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 no. This is about community. You matter, not what you can do. Those you're packing with matter. We're going to stop. <laughs> Open revolt. <laughs> but my job these days is to hold the line, to hold our feet to the fire of the things that we say we value, and to live those values out ahead of productivity. It's not always pleasant, but it's worth it. Here's a couple of quick tips that might be helpful in trying to do ministry this way, and then we'll, we'll take some questions and pray for each other. Um, these are in no particular order and just as they popped on the top of my head. So uh, those who start as volunteers need to know why we do what we do and what we're reaching for, not just what to do and how to do it. So when it's all about need, and we have a limited resource of volunteers, we gotta get them functioning really quickly, right? And we gotta train them how to do the things that they need to do, and we gotta make sure we cover our bases and everybody's legally whatever and all that good stuff. And we can just about get to the how, how to do what I need you to do. 
It's not enough. They need to know why. They need to know what's in our hearts. They need to know why we're reaching for what we're reaching for. That's really, really tricky. I have found it way easier to go from service user to community member than to go from volunteer to community member. This one's a fight. Um, some of the things that we've tried in doing that, um, we always lead with heart and vision. All our info nights, we always lead with our story. We always lead with this is, this is why we do what we do. Last year, we um, tried running a book club just for our volunteers where I just took 12 books that have really shaped and influenced our thinking and who we are. And we said, look, let's read a book a month and let's just sit down and talk about them. Let's just see if Jesus doesn't want to do something with our hearts in the midst of this. It's not productive. It's not going to maximize our food bags or get us more furniture or anything like that, but it's going to shape us. Um, if that's helpful, I've got a little list of the books we read over there. You can grab one of those. It might be helpful. I don't know. Um, I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, and I think it was really uh, impactful. We're about to start launching uh, a once-a-month thing called their Community Hub, where we gather anybody who is in that kind of swirl of service user, volunteer, community member, and come together um, and simply build relationship and connection. It's not training. We try and keep the training out of that. It's just connection. Hiya. Um, time together, shared experience, shared lives, sharing stories, making sure that we don't get siloed across all the different things that we do. Um, sharing heart. Excited for that to start this week. So make sure people know why they're doing what they're doing and not just how to do it. And if that means you don't get to the how that quickly, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, revisit and retell your story. Not just the organization or the ministry or the project story, your story. Pause and ask, how has Jesus impacted you on this journey? And don't just share where you are now, but how did you get there? I had a horrible moment. You know like you always want really positive things from God when he speaks clearly? The most, this is the clearest I've ever heard God speak. I was driving down a road in our city. I was whinging at God because the number of food bags we were giving out on a week had plateaued. I love spreadsheets. And I um, said, no, said no one ever. And um, my graph was just going up like this, and it was like, we are winning. And then it plateaued. And then it plateaued. And I was whinging at God, like, there's more people hungry, and why are we not doing more, and why is this plateaued? Clearest I've ever heard God speak. He said, do you want to know why? And I said, yeah. And he said, you don't love people. That's <laughs> what you want to hear when you hear clearly from God, isn't it? <laughs> he was dead right. I was trying to fix need. I was trying to run a project. I hadn't even entered my head that actually people need loved. <laughs> I was about a year and a half in. That's where we rebuilt everything, spun everything around. I'd love to say that's the last time he's had to say that to me. He's never had to say it quite so clearly. But he said it again <laughs> a few times. Um... But that's important to share your story, your journey. How's God taking you by the hand? That flows into my next thing I'd say. Um, build a staircase for others. Build a staircase. So what was the first step that you took? Hopefully you've taken a lot more steps since the first one. But everybody who comes after you needs to start where you started. Is that making sense? 
So not everybody is at a place where I have poverty and I can learn from the asylum seeker that is sitting opposite me and vice versa and we can enter into a mutually reciprocal community. We need to bring people on a journey. And so you need to leave the early steps. So we started a long time ago as a, as a, I suppose as a structured food bank. And um, step number one was buy an extra tin and put it in the trolley on a Sunday morning. Brutally honest, we don't need that trolley anymore. Like we're pretty food s sustainable now. It's it's headache because we have to have then another rota that takes it from there to the warehouse and so it's an extra work. But actually the people in our church who are coming in for the first time need that first step. They need to begin to engage somewhere. Don't take the step away just because it's become redundant for the system. Because it's not about the system. It's about community and drawing people in. So build a staircase and make it obvious so when people start to give, we're like, that's amazing. It's a great first step. Have you ever thought about coming to pack a food bag? When people come and pack, they give differently. I'll grab any random tin until I'm trying to pack a bag and thinking about eating it, and then I'm going, I don't want to pick any random food item. I want to pick really good stuff. So they'll give differently. And then once you've got them packing, take the next step. Hey, would you want to come down one time and just give some away? And when you hit sit and you hear a family story and you have to lift the bag you packed off the shelf and you realize this is rubbish and I could never live on it, you pack differently. And then go from giving away to coming to community. What if you just came and didn't do anything with provision and just, just met some people, had a coffee, had a chat, realized it wasn't terrifying? What about leading a community? And you just build a staircase. Does that make sense? But don't, the temptation is to take away the first step because you're so far past it. Everybody needs that. Build it. Build a pathway. Build a journey. Um, so get some really easy on-ramps. So we do Christmas hampers every year. We do um, a couple of hundred, fresh, well, 100, 150 to 170 fresh hampers. So we've got like a turkey in them and like full trimmings. And so they can't go out until like two days before Christmas, which is a logistical nightmare. <laughs> and uh, but it's a wonderful joy and we do that as storehouse as an organization we've got 35 other churches that now come and partner with us and all that good stuff but we've reserved the right to do that delivery just as our church just as the vineyard and so once a year we gather loads of families who come and go to people's houses we just give them two bags two two houses we tell them where to go we give them directions and so once a year I know that there's that chance for connection if I can't get you the rest of the year, I might just get you this one time. And hearts get hooked when we get close. So give those easy on-ramps, easy on-ramps for connection. We did a try a new environment month. Wherever you serve, you've been serving for years, just take a risk and try one new environment for one month. Really great at just giving, changing those lanes and moving people on that journey. Um, Think about how you do provision. Like I said, I am not against meeting need. I think that's really important. I think we're called to do it biblically. I think we need to do a great job of it. But how do you think about provision? For me, I think that provision buys me the opportunity for relationship. When somebody comes through our door to meet a physical need, I want to meet that in the best possible way with maximum dignity. But that's not my goal. My goal is, can I build relationship? Can I build connection? This moment that you've come through our door is my chance. This provision is buying me the chance. And just, to, just so I'm not painting a false picture, like we still probably do more provision than we do community. So we probably connect with about 80 to 100 households a week in provision and maybe only 50 to 60 households a week in community. 
So I'm not trying to paint this false picture. We do a lot of provision, but that's not my goal. Does that make sense? Use it, use it to buy you, yourself the chance for relationship. Um, last one. Do you do anything that is more fun than it is productive? Do you do anything that's not productive in any way <laughs> other than to, to create community and create relationship and create fun? Community always flourishes in shared experience. And joy is contagious. Joy is contagious. The poor don't just need fed. A lack of joy, a lack of fun, a lack of celebration, that is a poverty all of its own. Don't just be productive. Uh, I'll leave you with this and then we'll take some questions. Along with John 11, I've been pondering over a quote uh, from a book by a guy called Wendell Berry. Anybody read any Wendell Berry? Phenomenal writer. Oh. Uh, and I'll finish with this. Our politics and science have never mastered the fact that people need more than to understand their obligation to one another. They need also the feeling of such obligation. And the feeling can come only within the patterns of familiarity. Our churches will feel no obligation to the poor, and the poor to our churches goes both ways, with well-crafted announcements and more information. They need proximity. They need patterns of familiarity. How can we help make that happen? It seems a much, much more exciting question to me then how can I recruit more volunteers? Or how can I move donations from here to there? How can I build patterns of familiarity that cause us to see that we belong to one another? Questions? So the question was, how do we watch that power dynamic where people first come from for provision? There's a kind of, there's like a very clear power dynamic. Um, and how do we balance that journeying into community? What does that look like? How do we facilitate that well? And making, yeah, making sure that those who are vulnerable are safe. Great question. Uh, it's really tough. That's why lots of people don't do it this way. <laughs> Um, us and them, service user, volunteer, sit there, you can't go into the kitchen, I'll bring you coffee, you can't get your own coffee. Those lines are there for reasons, insurance companies and things really like those lines and risk assessments and all that good stuff. It's just not the church. So the first thing we do is we try in all of our provision environments, we try to blur those lines already as much as we possibly can. So every provision environment is like our, our three values. Actually, I'm gonna, I had a video, but I'm not, I'll not show it. Um, this is who we are. And our three values are dignity, significance, and hope. And so we start with dignity. So even when people come to us for, to, to meet a need, we don't start with the need. We start with the story. So all our project workers, iPads down, paperwork down. We try to not do paperwork because people can't read my writing. But um, we start with conversation. What's your story? What brought you here? And again, it just begins to shift some of that dynamic straight away. And we try to share sensitively as much as we can of ourselves. You know, we're, we're not like 
it's not really clear whose team you know, we know and there's a little lanyard but it's not big and obtrusive so we blur the lines as quickly as we can and we talk loads about family we talk loads about connection we talk loads about community and then loads of opportunities to draw people in it takes a long time it can be confusing because i come into this room on a monday morning and i'm a service user and i can't go into the kitchen and make coffee i come into the same room on a wednesday morning and nobody's going to serve me coffee i have to serve myself I get that that's confusing. One of the things we do is we make the room look different. We have the most moved around furniture in the whole of Belfast. We had to put wheels on the bottom of it because we were moving it so much. But we completely transform what the room looks like. So it's a safe environment and the environment's safe. But it feels different and they kind of get that feeling. And then that's the other part is we, we try to make sure that as we're building the community to begin with, it's within the boundaries of safety. So it's not, we're going to do community, I just met somebody referred to us, I'm now taking them home. That's unsafe. That's frowned upon. <laughs> Even by us. <laughs> it's, man, it feels like we really connected over a chat in a session. I'm going to be here on Wednesday. Why don't you come in? And we'll, we'll, we'll continue this over coffee here in a, in a safe environment. Does that make sense? I don't know if that answers your question. Any more questions? Mm -hmm. um, we haven't an established base yet. How would you suggest we could do this, even at a scaled version, when mm -hmm. you don't have a central resource, let's say, a central base, and we've got yeah. nothing to yeah. start from? So the question is, just for recording as well, uh, as a church plan, no central base, not tons of resource, where do we start? Um, small. Start small. God's called you to plant a church or whoever is the, 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 the lead planters. This is a part of the church. This is where sometimes in this room we get a little confused. This isn't the church. It's not the whole church. Um, you need to make sure you plant a church and a healthy church that can sustain all the ministries that God has called it to, not just one. You're not called to plant a charity. Um, you're called to plant a church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So get to know your community. So it took me six months of doing nothing and just doing research uh, to know our city, to know the needs, to know who was doing what. I just, giant whiteboard, what's every type of poverty I can think of? Who's doing anything in that area? Can I meet with them for a coffee? Where are the gaps? How can we resource? For years, we did nothing other than try and serve other communities. Um, for four years as storehouse, all we did was food bags. And for four years, we never met a single service user because the charities wouldn't trust us. So for four years, all we did was serve other charities to build equity and to get to the place. So you could do that from a garage. You can do that from someone's house. That seems like it cuts against everything I've just talked about. But if we couldn't get the equity and we didn't have the space to get to the vulnerable and the marginalized, how do we serve those who are serving them? How do we do that with community and relationship? How do we build connection with them, not just need? Does that make sense? So really slowly, looking for the favor of the Lord, looking where the doors swing. Um, don't run ahead of what the church can sustain. Um, and sometimes you've got to take a risk. Sometimes you do have people in your house. You do it sensitively. There are other neutral spaces, coffee shops. Where are the poor? Where are the marginalized spending their time? It won't be all in other agencies. Go find them. Be around them. Build friendships. I think...
Yeah, yeah. Bring more people with you more than try to do something different if you can. Mm. And I think we probably need to do that. We, we've identified what is happening in the bigger churches around. Mm -hmm. So we know what not to do, but we haven't established what to Okay, do. yeah. The Lord will show you if you keep asking. Honestly, like it, it just took it took me six months cold calling before I could get to even get started. That sounds... Any other questions? Yeah. What are you trying to say? <laughs> Question was how do you how do you manage criticism when you've got lots of different projects running and everybody wants to say and I'd imagine everybody feels theirs is the most important and um, I assume ultimately when it comes to storehouse other than Jesus there's not another desk that I can shuffle it onto so the buck stops with me so if there's issues. It's my fault. Somehow, somewhere, the vision, the team, the structure hasn't facilitated what we're trying to do, and, and I, I need to own that before Jesus doesn't define me, but I'll take the responsibility for it. Um, and then I think, how clear is your overall vision? And again, it comes back to, if we're trying to meet needs, we get lots of projects. If we're trying to have a central focus, uh, and we know who we are and what we're trying to reach for as a team, then we can pull things to the values and pull things back to the core. So about two years ago, I had an existential crisis because everybody thought we were a food bank and we didn't think we were a food bank and we didn't know what we were. And um, it was horrible. Blew apart everything that we were doing to get right back to the drawing board, all the projects, all the environments, all the systems. And this is where we landed, this diagram. And once I could put it in a diagram, I knew I could explain it to our teams and I knew I could call them to something clearer. And um, when we did that, when we made the values and the vision really clear, that made that a little easier. Um, and then with the criticism, we don't get frustrated when a service user comes in and they don't change overnight. And we don't get frustrated when their addiction doesn't drop off overnight because we know it's a journey. It's exactly the same with the volunteer. The criticism is belaying something of a, a brokenness and a poverty that we also need to journey with and slowly bring them into the middle. Does that make sense? And so just trying to see it in the same light, journey with people, draw them into a central vision, pray for them, love them. I could take one more and then we'll love to pray for you guys. I'll go here. So question is, as a separate charity, which Storehouse is, is there a blurring of communities or are they two separate and distinct communities from the church? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I obviously straddle both because I'm employed by the church. Lots of our staff, all our staff are part of the vineyard and loads of our um, team are, are, are part of the vineyard. The one thing we've done that brings them together is a project called Friday Church. So we accidentally planted a church, myself and my wife, um, six years ago it's a really clever name it's church on a Friday <laughs> um, and we just recognized that those in this community in the storehouse community weren't finding their way into the Sunday community 
and we looked at the reasons for that and realized that we were horribly middle class, and that's not bad. Some of us like 45-minute academic sermons with a little bit of Greek and Hebrew. Some of us preach them. But uh, that was a stumbling block. A big room in a different part of the city they'd never been in, that was a stumbling block. Um, and so we just looked at what would it look like to do church in a way that was as easy as possible to meet Jesus. And so we threw everything out that was middle class preference and simply designed a service on a Friday lunchtime. And, and so that community um, is very much a vineyard. That's not storehouse. That's a vineyard church. Just meets in the storehouse building. Um, and we try to blur those lines as much as possible. And we, they're always welcome on a Sunday, but we're not trying to clean people up to get them to Sunday. We're trying to raise them to be disciples and peers and disciplers uh, in their own worlds. And I'm trying to learn from them. And so, yeah, there is, there is some distinct parts, and then there's some really blurry, messy parts. Um, and we shouldn't be afraid of the mess. Back to the first question, shouldn't be afraid of the mess. Do it with wisdom and integrity, but God's really big and faithful. So I'm aware it's tea time. Um, i got some friends here. Uh, you guys got any prophetic words? Why don't you guys stand? We'll just pray for you. If you need to leave, go for it. If you've got questions, there's some resources over there. I don't have loads. Um, I'm staying around. I occasionally write a badly worded blog, and the address is on the little handout. If that's helpful, just expand some of what we've been chatting about. But you guys got some words? So I'll pray first, and then these guys will share some prophetic words, and then we'll see what happens. So Holy Spirit, we love you. We thank you that you're amongst us. We pray, would you fall right now in power, where you have called us to those that you love? Would you now equip us? Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Yeah, so as I was sitting, I had a word actually for you over there, probably because you're in my periphery. Um, what's your name? Israel. Israel, okay. Um, for you, as I was sitting and praying, the Lord just reminded me of on Christmas Day past, I went up to Donegal, place in Ireland, and we were on a beach, and there is this little hidden waterfall behind this big cliff, um, and no one can see it unless you go seeking it out. It's a really, really beautiful place. And it's a really powerful waterfall, and it flows straight into the sea. And I just felt like the Lord was really saying to me, not in particular reference to any of the science stuff, but just in general, sometimes what you do, you can feel like it's a little bit hidden and unseen and behind the scenes. But the Lord really said to you, it is such a vital part, and he really sees that and values that, and it flows into um, the wider body in a really beautiful way. And without you there, behind the scenes, grafting away, um, yeah, it would be a totally different place. So... That's what the Lord kind of highlighted to me. Um, so I just got the verse in general uh, from Luke sixteen ten. Um, so one is faithful and very little is also faithful and much. Um, and then I also got an image of kind of like a walnut. Um, and there's that natural sort of shell there. Um, but just whenever that's cracked, there's something really <laughs> small and valuable. <laughs> um, so yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I got. Pete, you hear something? I just, Jen, Jenny just felt it would be great just to, is there anybody here who feels like they are a sense of failure over and be brave enough just to put on, just like hearing some of this, maybe you feel like you've pushed into provision a wee bit more, you feel like, oh man, 
this community stuff, I I don't know if we're doing that really well. Anybody brave enough maybe just to feel like who put their hand up? Yeah, a few more. Yeah, I really feel like the Lord just wants to pray uh, for us just to pray. So those guys who put their hand up, if you keep your hand up just for a moment, if some of the guys uh, just around them, if you could just gather around and be really kind, be Vineyard family, and if you could just put a hand on them and just pray for them. I'm just going to pray very quickly. Um, Father God, I thank you for uh, just just everyone in this room, and p- particularly these guys who just feel like, you know, they they look at things and, and they're feeling some failure over, over what they are doing. And I pray that you would break that off right now. Father God, I thank you that that is not what you look at and you see. And with the truth of just how proud you are of them, how much you love them individually right now, would that just break into their hearts and lives? And would you just come and pour your Holy Spirit out upon them? Would you minister to them? Would you fill them up? Yeah, if you guys would just be kind enough just to keep praying uh, uh, for, for those guys just for a moment, that would be great. So if you're receiving, just keep receiving. If you would like us to pray for anything that's been stirred, these guys will be up here. We'd love to pray for you. If you've got any questions that we didn't have time for, I'd love to chat. We'll stay around for as long as you need. Uh, we'll be here for the rest of the week if you want to grab a coffee. Otherwise, guys, thank you for the way you serve your communities, and God bless you.